If I may, I want to take your memories back to a Disney classic, The Lion King. There's a scene in the film where Simba is returning to reclaim the throne. You remember that? He's come back to Pride Rock to reclaim the throne, but Scar will have none of that. Uh, he begins to remind Simba of his past, his responsibility, his role in his father Mufasa's tragic accidental death. And Scar does more than imply, he does more than insinuate, he actually just comes right out and is accusing Simba, saying that his guilt, his guilt, his role in that, his guilt disqualifies him to be the king. And if you think back to how that scene begins to unfold and the direction it nearly goes, it throws Simba off just dramatically and just into deep doubt and nearly really undoes him, such as his guilt. John Stott, in his book, Confess Your Sins, quotes the head of a large British psychiatric ward. And this man said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. That's the greatest pressing need that we have as human beings. To know that we can truly be forgiven of real guilt, of real guilt that we bear. It's the greatest pressing need we have. Which brings us to our text this morning, Leviticus chapter 16. Why is forgiveness necessary? What does it look like? What does it entail? What does it mean to be forgiven by God? What does it mean to be washed clean, forgiven of our sin, and to be rid of our guilt? The thing that, that, or things that keep us up in the middle of the night and make us spin out towards all forms of distraction and diversions over the course of the day. What does it mean to be forgiven, to be washed clean of our sin and set free? And set free by the Lord himself. Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, it's on the screen. Let me give you again, this is one of those longer passages. It's uh, 34 verses. So I, I feel like I want to try and help you and give you some, some mile markers, some trail markers a, as you go. Okay, And it's all marked off in your English Bibles, I don't doubt, by some paragraph breaks. So, And as we're reading, I'll even try and mark it as we go as well, but here's a preview. So verses 1 through 10 are going to be preparations that the high priest needed to undergo uh, before going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, okay? It's verses 1 through 10, the preparations of the high priest. They were extensive. Uh, verses 11 through 28 are a series, a sequence of three offerings that are being uh, presented unto the Lord by the high priest uh, on his, uh, for himself as well as the, the people as well. The, the first of those is what's you, probably in your English Bible is the, the sin offering. We talked about that some weeks ago. It's also known as the purification offering. That's the first of the three. The second is the scapegoat offering. And the third is the burnt offering. Again, I'll try and remember to highlight those as we, we go through. That's verses 11 through 28. Verses 29 to 34 are a series of final instructions that are given to the people. Again, all pertaining to, all pertaining to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The climax, really, 
of these uh, ceremonies in the course of uh, Israel's calendar year. So here we go, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 34. Hear now the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which a lot, the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Okay. Those are the preparations. Now we move into verses 11 through 28. These are the three offerings. First, the, uh, the uh, sin offering, the purification offering. Then the scapegoat offering that's already been alluded to here by referring to it as the Azazel offering. We'll talk about that later. And then finally, the whole burnt offering that comes out. Those are the three. Here, all right, here we go. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Okay, now comes the sacrifice of the scapegoat. 
And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, their, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments. Here comes the whole burnt offering. And he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their sin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his water and body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And now verses 29 and following are some final instructions for the Day of Atonement. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please give us understanding? We know that we no longer need to worship in this way, in these forms. And yet, these forms should inform and shape and tell us something of our worship now. Why? Who? What is this about? We have sung and read of the bearing of sin. Of substitute. Of one standing in our place. And taking what was ours upon himself. Surely... We can see, see something already here in these rites and regulations, these rules and statutes pertaining to the Day of Atonement. But we want to 
not just sort of understand, we really want to grapple with this. Because if it's pointing our, our eyes towards you, we want to see that we would know you better. And that we would know what you've done for us better. So that we ask that you would stir within our hearts, whatever state our hearts may be here this morning, oh, would you stir in our hearts. Oh, Holy Spirit, you inspired these words to be written such that nothing more and nothing less is what we have here before us, exactly what you wanted, exactly what is here. You, the one who inspired these words, oh, would you now illumine our dark and oftentimes confused minds and change our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. The scapegoat. The scapegoat is most simply defined as one that bears blame for others. One that bears blame for others. Uh, an example you could say might be the board of directors decided that the CEO would be the scapegoat for the plunge of the value of the stock. Something like that. that that's a, you know, that sort of example. The, the term was coined by William Tyndale in his translation of in the English Bible uh, a long, long time ago as he was translating and trying to wrestle with what to do with this word that you read, heard me read a few times already, Azazel, Azazel, which literally means the goat that goes away. That's what the word means, the goat that goes away. Some say you could transliterate that and say a scapegoat, and we just sort of say scape. Uh, Tyndale also coined another word that comes up uh, in this passage a, a few times, and that is atonement. That's where we get the word from, is William Tyndale's English translation uh, that, that we have. And uh, it's, he, you can get an idea of well, what it means simply by breaking the word down a little bit. At one meant. At one meant. Uh, it's kind of a simple way of understanding, but that's really what it has to do with. And it, it means... Uh, salvation coming from God for his people, salvation from sin and cleansing from sin, salvation from the, his just wrath due upon us for our guilt because of our sin and cleansing, cleansing of the filth of that sin as well. Uh, we've been reading here in chapter 16 the institution of the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement, again, the, the high point during the year for Israel's worship and the, the sacrificial system that the Lord gave to them. So this is not something they created. This is his idea. And you can see something of the context of where this all comes from. Like, like why was it deemed to be necessary? Right there in the first few verses of chapter 16 that allude to a tragic incident that you can see recorded there in chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who thought they could do with and how and what they wanted to in regard to the, the Holy of Holies, and God struck them down. You can read that there in chapter 10, and it's alluded to here in chapter 16. And the purpose, the purpose of all of this, again, is to um, address, if I can put it that way, address both the danger that our sin poses in the presence of a holy God, as, whether, as well as our defilement, the defilement of our sin as we stand before 
a holy God. Now, there are a lot of different directions that we could go uh, in this passage. A lot of different directions that we could go. I need to unding my phone here, sorry. I'm popular with somebody. Um, uh, there are a lot of different directions that we could be going with this particular passage, but I, I, for just time's sake, uh, it seems like to me it would be most helpful for us to drill down deeply on this concept of the scapegoat, of the scapegoat. What exactly is going on here? If this is the only time that you see it directly referenced in the entire Bible, directly referenced. Indirectly, it's all over the place, okay? But directly referred to, this is the only place in the, the, all Scripture that the scapegoat is mentioned, and it's actually mentioned four times, Okay? with the, the mentioning of the, of the Azazel and, and all of that. And it is a clear signpost to Jesus. Jesus, if I can put it this way, is the ultimate scapegoat. In the best possible sense, Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat, if we're defining that as one that bears the blame for others. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. The Lord has provided. That's what we're seeing here. The Lord has provided the scapegoat, his scapegoat. We simply need to lay hold of him that we would know his forgiveness. The Lord has provided his scapegoat to take away, to remove our sin. Ours is but to lay hold of him that we might be forgiven. Now, if you've got the outline, if you printed it out or brought it with you, uh, this is simply where we're going, these three points. They build on themselves, uh, each one in sequence. The first is the sacrifice of the scapegoat. That's the first point. So we're going to talk about a little bit of what's going on here in Leviticus 16. Then we move from there to the promise of the scapegoat, some of the indirect references that we find in the scriptures related to that. And then finally, the third point being the fulfillment of the scapegoat. So we, the sacrifice, the promise, and the fulfillment. What is this? How, what does it mean? Again, the question we put at the beginning. What does it mean to be forgiven? The sacrifice of the scapegoat. Let's think in terms of the procedure. What's happening? What's going on here on this day of atonement? The, the, the system that the Lord provided, indeed commanded his people. So in, in the course of things, and we, as we're reading through this, you see twice, for the first time it's alluded to and, uh, towards the beginning in that first section that we read, and then you get into verses 20 and following, get some specificities regarding this. There are two goats, right? Did you pick up on that? There are two goats, and lots are cast over the two goats. So you've got goat number one and goat number two. You've got goat number one is the sacrificial goat. This goat is, is killed and his blood is taken into the, uh, the, into the tent, into the tabernacle, past the veil, into the Holy of Holies, and the goat's blood is sprinkled upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, is how that's oftentimes referred to. This is God's throne. It is sprinkled upon the very throne of God in the king's throne room. You could put it that way as well. And you really think about this in terms of the imagery. What's happening here? Blood is coming between the law of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Blood is coming between the law of God and the sin of the people of God. 
You see that imagery there? The blood comes between the two. And then that same blood is sprinkled elsewhere within the tabernacle such that uh, the Lord can, and this comes back to the Leviticus question we've been talking about over the course of this series, how is it that a holy God can live amongst, to dwell amidst an unholy, sinful people? Well, this is part, this is part of that. Then there's the second goat. The second goat is not slaughtered. I, I think you probably noted that, how many times it's referred to as the live goat, intentionality there. Uh, with this goat, Aaron and the high priest as his sons would uh, succeed him, and then on and on and on the generations, Aaron places not one, this is new, both hands upon the head of that goat. And the sins of the people are confessed aloud, audibly, presumably loud enough for people, everyone to hear. The sins of the people are confessed and, if you will, laid on the head of that goat, And then that goat is led out into the wilderness, never to be seen again, and then that man who leads that goat comes back, of course, without the goat. And there's so much going on here, so much that was meant to be conveyed here, and all the symbolism. And the symbolism is huge for us to grapple with here today in terms of the question that we're asking, what does it mean? What does it mean for God to forgive us? First, let's think about that first goat. The first goat, again, is is slaughtered, his blood. It's a substitution. It's an innocent one. Being slaughtered, being killed, blood shed for us in our our stead, on our behalf. Theologians, big big heavy word here, refer to this as uh, God's work of propitiation. That is to say, the removal of his wrath. This is the, the work of propitiation. The removal of his wrath is being figured here, illustrated, pictured here in what's happening with this, this, this particular goat and that blood being taken into the Holy of Holies, into God's very presence. That's tremendous. Again, pointing towards a substitutionary atonement. atonement. The second goat... We have the second goat. This, though, is not the work of propitiation, the removal of wrath. This is what's referred to as the work of expiation, the removal of sin. The removal of sin. The one leads to the other, is the, is the idea. The work of the, of the one, what's happening with the one, leads to as a consequence with the other. The work of with the first goat, that's, once that is completed, it is never to be done again. And the same is the true with the second goat. Once that is completed, it is never to be done again. And yet, we read, in, of course, you know, this was something that was to be done once a year, again and again and again. So you say it's never to be done again, and yet it's being done annually. What, there's tension here. We'll get to that. We'll get to that here in, in just a minute. But what does it mean to be forgiven? Here we see Uh, The Lord pointing forward, giving us, giving the people both the means by which they could be forgiven and the results. What does it mean to be forgiven? Wrath removed, sin removed. Uh, This is a text we alluded to some weeks ago. I want to come back to Leviticus 17, 11. Key verse in the whole book. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And uh, you may remember when we mentioned this a few weeks ago that the, uh, the, there's an emphasis here that, that it's in the Hebrew. It's not really captured very well at all in the English. Uh, it's not a knock on the ESV. It's just a reality uh, with the way the English translations do this. But you really could paraphrase or translate this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I, I myself have given it for you. Great emphasis here on where this comes from. Whose idea is this? Again, both emphasizing the need and the means by which atonement can come. It comes from the Lord, from the start. Even that which pictures where atonement will come from comes from Him. Now, just to, okay, put that to the side. Let's come back and put ourselves there. I think it's so helpful to try and put ourselves there and imagine what it would have been like there that day on the Day of Atonement. You're a man or a woman or a child standing in the crowd, and you are experiencing this. You are watching this. You are hearing this. You are observing this, feeling this. You have seen. You are a witness. Your eyes have seen. The priest cut the neck of the, of the first goat. The blood is caught in a bowl, carried into the tabernacle you can't see him now but you know what's transpiring because you've heard the laws read you know that for a time he's in there you know what he's doing you know he's carrying that blood into the holy of holies and the incense obscuring his sight that he would not be struck dead because of seeing the living god upon his throne but that blood is put down there upon the mercy seat between the law and your sin and then he comes out and then there's this second goat. And the second goat, then the priest puts his hands upon him, and you hear, you hear the sins of the people. You hear the sins of your people. You hear your sin confessed. And name by name, and put upon the head of that goat. And then that goat is led away never to be seen again. And doesn't it, couldn't it, might it raise a question in your mind? Could it be true? Could we really be rid of our sin? Could I really be rid of my sin the way we're now rid of that goat? The Lord has provided a scapegoat. The Lord has provided a scapegoat. Ours is to lay hold of him, but let's keep going. So, this gets us to point to the promise of the scapegoat. I said earlier, you, this is the, Leviticus 16 is the only time we see it explicitly mentioned, but thematically, you see it repeated again and again and again all through the scriptures, both what the necessity of this and what it would accomplish. So, there's a few texts that we're going to hit on just real quickly, five of them, five of them. The Lord wanting us to see this theme, this recurring theme, and reiterating it. Not just picturing it there and that once a year, but in several genres of literature. In fact, over the, the succeeding centuries, we see this as well. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen. No, keep going. All right, so we've got uh, the first one, Psalm 103. Psalm 103, uh, verses 11 through 12. Psalm 103, verse 12. 
103, verses 11 and 12, sorry. Uh, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What of our sins? What of our sins? They have been removed, removed from us and from God, an infinite distance. You cannot get further away than east and west. That's how far our sins have been removed. Moving on to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What of our sins? What of our fins? The the files. The files have been destroyed. The marks have been expunged. It's gone. It's gone. Isaiah chapter 38, 7. Isaiah chapter 38, 7. Here too we read some beautiful perhaps even shocking things. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. What of our sins? God has deliberately hidden them. Hidden them. Put them out of his sight. He doesn't want to see them. He doesn't need to see them. He has hidden them. He has hidden them. Isaiah Chapter 43, just a few pages to the right, Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Not just he forgets passively, right? Where did I put my car keys? You didn't decide to do that, you accidentally... Okay, it's not passively forgetting, it's actively choosing not to remember, It's not just that the slate is wiped clean. This slate has been broken and thrown in the rubbish heap. Okay? One last one, Micah. Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love he will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and note even there the language is not oops dropped it overboard no 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 launched launched out into the very depths the deep deeps of the ocean. It would seem that our God is eager to deal with our sin in this way and eager to communicate to his people that that's what he has done. It's, it's just beautiful. Uh, Corey Tinboom, I don't know how many of you are familiar with her name, The Hiding Place, A Tramp for the Lord, great books. Encourage you to read them if you haven't already. Corey Tinboom was, was so fond of, of hearkening to that text from Micah 7 again and again, and this is how she uh, would, would put it in her teaching uh, on this. Uh, she would say that after God cast our sins overboard, he put up a sign saying, no fishing allowed. 
And oh, do we not need to lay hold of that because of how prone you and I are, we, we are, to dredge all that up again as though that's what we need to do. You know, as though that has some value, as though that's going to do something, as though that's, that's going to mean something. Or we allow other people to do it for us. Friends, ours is not. It's very clear. Here's on the authority of the Word of God, we can really truly say ours is not to live under the overcast gray skies of guilt and regret, but rather the clear blue of the Lord's forgiveness. That's what he's trying to convey to us, what he's done, what he's done. How can we say that? Because he's provided the scapegoat. Our sins have been borne away. We simply need to lay hold of that, live out of that, and his forgiveness for us. Which then takes us to this third point, the fulfillment of all this, not just the sacrifice itself and not just the promise of this, but how can we talk about this? I mean, the people of Israel surely knew Graphic and dramatic as this Day of Atonement was, goats aren't going to do it. We know that. They knew that. But it was all meant to dramatically point towards something, point towards the fulfillment of all of this. Jesus, Jesus, this one who has accomplished all of this, his great, beautiful, wondrous, finished work. We were reading from Hebrews 9 earlier. Let me just take you back just to a couple of clauses there that are so helpful to, to remember. Hebrews chapter 9, verses, start just with verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We're skipping down to verse 26. Uh, but as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And out of this, because of this, this great finished work, a promise is now held forth for you and I. The Apostle John speaks of this in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what he's accomplished. That's what's been done. That's what's been finished. Now, how can that accomplished work be appropriated? How can it be ours? How do we lay hold of that? It's so simple. It's simple, simple. It's that simple. Two things. Repent. Repent. To turn. To turn from our sin. To mourn for our sin. To mourn not just the consequences to ourselves and how bad we feel and penalties that we're having to bear. No, 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 no. Not that kind of mourning. Mourning what we've done and how we've hurt and grieved the heart of God himself and how we have grieved and hurt those around us. That's the kind of mourning for sin we're talking about here. Mourning, turning from that. Repentance literally means turning turning from, turning from our self-sufficiency and self-dependency and thinking that, ah, we've got to work harder and do better. No, turning from all of that and turning to Jesus. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Turning from, turning to. 
Turning from our self-righteousness, our self-dependence to Christ, Christ's righteousness and His and His alone. What He has done for us in bearing upon Himself as the scapegoat, taking upon Himself in full and taking it away. And taking it away. That's how what He has accomplished is appropriated. That's how the work of the scapegoat comes full circle. And a real living day of atonement takes place. And I should note, and this needs to be emphasized, this is not just something we do at the start. Like when you first become a Christian, okay, now I'm going to repent and believe in Jesus. No, 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 no. Yes, that's where it starts, but it never, it never stops. That's the posture of the Christian life. Daily repentance, daily believing, continually breathing in, breathing out. Each day, yes, objectively, he has borne that sin away, never to be seen again. But subjectively, we need to be laying hold of that, being assuring, preaching the gospel, as oftentimes said, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, through the day, leaning into that. Like a, like a newborn baby, yes, that newborn takes in that first breath of fresh air. But if that baby is going to live and grow, she or he needs to keep breathing. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, turning from, turning to, turning from, turning to. And this is not a mind game, pretending, oh, as though you hadn't sinned. No, you're looking to the one who bore it away, and you know how he sees you now. And that's what you're living out of. That's what you're living out of. The Lord in his grace has provided us this scapegoat. Let me end with this. Uh, some of you may have seen the film The Mission, 1986. A very young Liam Neeson, almost unrecognizable, um, Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. Uh, Gabriel. Gab Gabriel is a Jesuit priest who has been sent to build a mission in, uh, among the Guarani people in South America. Uh, Mendoza. Mendoza is a mercenary, a slave trader. He's a brutal man. He has just, at this point, when you get to this point in the film, he has just killed, murdered his brother in a fit of jealous rage and a fight about another woman whose love they were competing for. Mendoza, the mercenary, is literally and figuratively imprisoned in his guilt and in his regret. And Gabriel, the missionary, the Jesuit priest, comes to him trying to persuade him, come with me, come with me, to this village, this one of these Gorani villages where he had, was known, known so terribly. Let me pick up in some of the dialogue here. Gabriel says, there is life, Mendoza. There is no life. Gabriel says, there is a way out, Mendoza. For me, there is no redemption. Gabriel responds, God gave us the burden of freedom. You chose your crime. Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare to do that? Now, just a side note. Let's not get sidetracked on the penance thing, okay? Just stay with the dialogue, okay? There is no penance hard enough for me, but do you dare try it? Do I dare? Do you dare to see it fail? So then they begin this journey. This is one of the most dramatic scenes, probably the high point of, of the film. They begin this journey into the jungle, up into the mountains, and uh, uh, Gabriel has strapped this huge, crazy huge sack of armor 
upon Mendoza's back. So they're going up this, this muddy mountain trail that would be perilous and difficult enough for even the most experienced of climbers to say nothing of, you've got a 100-pound pack of armor now strapped to your back trying to make it through the jungle. Finally, 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 they make the ascent. The Gorani in this village are thrilled, excited to see Gabriel the missionary, but then, then they see the one who has enslaved them, the one who has treated them so brutally, and the mood changes on a dime. And one of the Guarani men runs towards Mendoza, who's just, you know, exhausted, laying down in the mud with this armor shackled to his back. The, the Guarani man grabs a knife. This is his opportunity, you know. He grabs the knife and point, puts it right at Mendoza's throat. And Mendoza is just still as stone, knowing he deserves whatever it is that's about to happen to him. But in a shocking act of grace, that Guarani man takes that same knife, pulls it away from Mendoza's throat, and cuts the rope. And everyone in the village watches that sack tumble down into this ravine. And Mendoza, Mendoza's confused. He's shocked. And then he begins, realization begins to dawn on him what's happened. And he begins to sob uncontrollably. Why? He has just tasted of forgiveness. He has just tasted of forgiveness. Friends, guilt can crush you. It is a really heavy pack to carry. Guilt can crush you. Many of us are very religious people. And we think the answer, this is the way it goes with religious people. Good red staters. This is how we think this works. The way we deal with our guilt is to work harder. To try harder. To do better. Others, I'll call this, I'll say the blue staters. That's not the approach at all. The approach is rather, well, let's take this tack. Let's say there is no right and there is no wrong. So therefore, I have no guilt. You see, if there is no right and there is no wrong, I've done nothing wrong, therefore I have no guilt. But here's the problem. Both, by the way, the red and the blue are wrong. Here's the problem specifically with that second approach. And it is, it's been written a lot of in recent years. It's referred to as the strange persistence of guilt. You can say you've done nothing wrong. You can pretend there is no objective right and wrong. But there is this strange thing that happens in the conscience. And you just can't seem to shake as a human being. That something is wrong. And you have done wrong. But here's the problem. The crushing burden that so many of our neighbors and friends carry. And maybe even some of us here in this room when you've taken the second approach. Here's what you've just done to yourself. You've said there is no right and wrong, yet you strangely carry this burden of guilt. And now because you've said there is no law and no lawgiver, you have nowhere to go with your guilt. You've said there is no law, there is no lawgiver, you now have nowhere to go with your guilt. All it is now is you and your burden. 
and you're in the same place as the religious person now. What are you going to do? Who will cut your burden loose? Jesus. The one in this ancient, ancient rite that we've been reading of here in Leviticus 16, the scapegoat, he alone, he alone takes our burden upon himself and takes it far, far, far away. He is the scapegoat. He is the answer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please help us to see the ways in which indeed you are the first goat. That's the picture of what you've done. The blood shed for us and divine just wrath removed. Jesus, would you help us also to see the ways in which you are the second goat as well. As the sin, our sin, was put upon you and you were led away and our sins never to be seen again. Lord Jesus, would you hear right now in these next few minutes as we take a moment of silence before you to ask in what ways we are carrying things, guilt, that you intend to take from us, that we are carrying in ways that we were never meant to. We ask that you'd bring those things to mind, that we might be able to lay them upon you. Amazing love. Amazing grace. Would you help us to know this? Oh Lord, would you help us to know this? To feel the lightning of the burden having been cut off our back. May we know it and live out of it. We pray in your name. Amen.